Good morning. So in, in, uh, in life, we talk about wearing different hats, but in church, it's different microphones, which that won't stay there either. I'll keep faffing around with it. Okay. The Torah, the law in the Bible, does list crimes against God and the law that are punishable by death. Okay. Which is a very mothering Sunday, you know. You wait for the reading, it gets better. Um, these include blasphemy, which is using God's name in vain, murder, child sacrifice, cursing God, adultery, desecrating the Sabbath, incest. I've got one I won't read here, but you can ask me later if you're interested. Um, lying about your virginity upon marriage. And serially disobeying one's parents. Food for thought? It was the role of the court to judge those accused of such crimes and many others. But there were rules set by both the Bible and the courts themselves. And these include that any death penalty case requires two independent witnesses, independent of each other and the accused who must then be the first to lay hands on the convicted person to kill them. The trial must take place during the day. The trial must take place in a council chamber. The trial must not take place on a Sabbath or a feast day. And as we go through the story of the judgments passed late on Thursday night and early on Friday morning, I'd like you to bear those in mind. So let's listen to our gospel reading and consider who is doing the judging. The reading is from <clears throat> Matthew chapter 27, reading from the first verse. If you'd like to get your Bibles out, you'll find it on page 1008, 1008. Matthew chapter 27, reading from verse 1. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? They replied, that's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest picked up the coins and said, It is against the law to put this into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. 
This is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. This is the word of the Lord. So I counted a number of judgments in that passage, although you could argue that some of them were repeats. Uh, Which ones did you spot? Do you spot anybody judging anybody? Not a rhetorical question this time. Uh, Of whom? Judas. Yeah, absolutely. Judas judges himself. And he did some judging. So we could call him a judge who is judged in this passage. He he judged Jesus' actions and decided to uh, do something about it. And he uh, sadly killed himself. So, as I said, it would get better with the reading. Special reading for Mother's Day, Judas hangs himself. Any other judgments in that passage? Gosh, you're quiet this morning. (laughs) Who cursed God? Yes, so by what they were judging Jesus, but by doing that they were judging God. Yes, absolutely. Yes, and cursing him, which is nicely picked up for one of the the crimes punishable by death. Any other judgments you spotted in there? Yeah, so Pilate does some judging, and he, and he again, he is a judge. Uh, he does some judging. Um, yeah, he judges Jesus, and uh, he also judges what the, the chief priests and elders are saying. So there, there are a number of judgments. Let's uh, reveal the ones that I saw and see how they compare. If we can. So the chief priests and the elders judged Jesus. It's gone again not happy wow Uh, Judas judged Jesus the chief priests and the elders judged Jesus again Judas judged the chief priests and the elders Judas judges himself Judas judged Jesus as we heard Jesus is judged by Pilate and the chief priests and the elders judge Jesus again so we're 
as I've mentioned before, when I was given this title, I have to admit it didn't seem much of a Mothering Sunday service title. I suppose you could go into the passage asking yourselves what would his mother be thinking if she could see him doing this. But ultimately, there isn't really a Mothering Sunday message in this reading. So uh, we, I left that to Steve. What I hope to do this morning is to bring something new to you from this story in terms of its context and its interpretation. So my conclusion is very much about judgment and the judge, the one judge. And it comes from looking into why each person in this account makes the judgments that they do. American pastor Bryce Morgan said in a sermon on this passage, these leaders of God's people are passing judgment on and condemning the one who has been appointed by God himself to judge, the one who will one day judge all people, including them. Something is terribly wrong here. Jesus has been appointed judge over all creation by his Father because he is the Son of Man. So firstly, we see here that Jesus is judged by the chief priests and the elders. In fact, the very first verse of our reading says exactly that. The chief priests and elders made their plans how to have Jesus executed. Their main thing was to have Jesus executed. They just had to find a way of doing it that would keep their hands clean. Well, cleanish. So plan A was to bind him, lead him away, and hand him over to the Roman governor, a man whose name is synonymous with this story, Pilate. Pilate was a man with a reputation. <coughs> Sorry, that's, his reputation has just left me speechless. <laughs> he was a barbarous leader. I don't think that's to do with being a barber. I think that's to do with being a barbarian in, in, in his style. So he uh, was a barbarous leader who willfully defied the traditions of the Jewish people. And although that seems to us like, well, why wouldn't he? The Romans had a bit of a policy that when they, uh, when they sort of became governing over a people, they actually allowed them to continue with their kind of religious stuff, so long as it didn't stop them uh, from calling the Romans the bosses. So there was this kind of allowance that we would give you a little bit and we expect, well, everything else in return. So um, it was something that was, was frowned upon as a, as a Roman governor that he would um, willfully defy the traditions of the Jewish people. He oversaw bribes, insults, robberies, outrages, wanton injuries, executions without trial, notice that one, and grievous cruelty. He was more ruthless than most, and that's saying something for a Roman. However, that character assassination was written by an historian called Philo, or Philo, of Alexandria, and his reputation was one of being hugely dramatic with bias. So he's not really a reliable historic witness. But Josephus, who you may have heard of, was a slightly more reliable historian, and he describes him similarly. Similarly. He tells of an occasion where the Jews protested outside Pilate's palace 
when he had allowed shields and standards with the name of the Caesar Tiberius inscribed on them into Jerusalem and even into the temple against Jewish law. A protest also followed the use of temple funds, which had been stolen by Pilate for the building of an aqueduct. And on Pilate's command, soldiers infiltrated the protest and proceeded to club many to death. So all in all, not a very nice man. As a postscript, Pilate was removed from office and sent back to Rome after using excessive force to disperse a suspected Samaritan insurrection. So take a moment to absorb that. Even the Romans thought that Pilate's methods were excessive. So I can imagine that the chief priests and the elders could not believe their luck when they brought Jesus to him. Here's a man who will execute without trial. Here's a man who is known for uh, calling for the, the, the clubbing to death of people who are protesting without warning. This, this guy is, a, is an easy yes for getting Jesus executed. The chief priests and the elders did indeed have the authority to judge Jews. We're going to come back to Pilate, so just, just bear him in mind. We're going to hear a little bit about Caiaphas now. Caiaphas had been the high priest for 18 years, which is 14 more than the usual. He was the de facto ruler of the worldwide Jewish community. And at a time of year when there were over 2.5 million Jews in Jerusalem, it was vital to him and his coveted role that peace was maintained. So had anyone else claimed to be the son of God, king of Jews, bringer of the new age, there is no doubt that they would have been treated the same way, especially if people were actually listening to him. But the thing was that Jesus really was the son of God. He really was the king of the Jews. The time really had come. And there were priests and elders who had listened to what he had said and believed him. Caiaphas could have seen that Jesus really was the man they had been looking for, for all those years. But he chose not to. He chose to get rid of him permanently. However, the kangaroo court convened by Caiaphas doesn't hold up to scrutiny. Their star witness had withdrawn his statement and is on his way to kill himself. Their court was held at night when Jewish trials had to take place in the light of day. It took place on a feast day, which was not allowed. And it was held in Caiaphas's house rather than the public court chamber, again, not allowed. But plan A, bind him, take him to uh, Pilate, doesn't work. We read in Luke's Gospel that Pilate abdicated responsibility for Jesus' so-called trial once he heard he was a Galilean. He promptly sent him to Herod. And so plan B kicks into action as Jesus stands before Herod. And Herod was delighted because he had heard about Jesus and was looking forward to some kind of magic show. When he doesn't get one, he sends Jesus back to Pilate, who no doubt sighed and rolled his eyes, or whatever the Roman equivalent was back then. And plan C is a lot like plan A. 
Back before Pilate, the chief priests and elders call for Jesus to be handed the death sentence because he claims to be the king of the Jews. His words, when questioned, were, you have said so, or according to the message translation, so you say. Pilate is amazed by the accused, refusing to argue against his accusers. It was a totally unexpected response, and Pilate had seen a few. This behaviour suggested that either the accusations were true, or that he wants to die. With the benefit of hindsight and the Gospels, we know that it's both. Pilate may attempt to avoid the assertion that he actually judged Jesus by washing his hands in a symbolic action, but it's all semantics, really. The truth is that he preferred to keep his job over being morally right. And Pilate and the chief priests were not the only ones judging here, as we noted at the beginning. Jesus had been judged by Judas as well. It's believed that Judas felt Jesus wasn't doing enough about overthrowing the Romans and re-establishing the kingdom of Israel. And therefore, he wanted to scare him or force him into action by having him face the Sanhedrin, the high court of Jerusalem. But Judas soon realises that this is not going to be a scare tactic, nor will Jesus be forced into an act of rebellion. The chief priests mean business and he's in trouble. Judas is in trouble because Jesus is in trouble. And Judas judges himself by his own standards and ultimately sentences himself to death. But not before he's been judged by the same chief priests and elders. Their judgment of him, well, he had betrayed an innocent man, which was punishable by death. So obviously, they tell him, it's not our problem. However, Jesus knew that Judas would betray him, and yet he still went to Gethsemane. He stayed in Jerusalem, and he did not hide or send out spies. He made himself available, not to the earthly judges, but to the one who had given him the authority to judge because he was the Son of Man. He knows our weaknesses and temptations, because he has been one of us. His response to the judgment of him? Forgive them. They don't actually know what they've got themselves involved with. But before Judas could hear Jesus' words of forgiveness, he had been judge, jury, and executioner over himself and committed suicide. The words of the chief priests and elders in John's telling of the story are also fascinating. John 19, 15 tells us that they said, we have no king but Caesar. And it takes us back to 1 Samuel when the Hebrews told Samuel to ask God for a, to give them a king. They'd rejected Samuel's authority and more important, they'd rejected God's authority over them. They wanted to put their faith in a king they could see as the ultimate judge and saviour. And in John 8, 33, the priests and elders say that they are defendants of Abraham and have never been in bondage to any man, that they did not submit to the authority of man because they believed in a higher authority, God. 
And yet just a few chapters later, like those Hebrews who spoke to Samuel, they're announcing that they would prefer to bow the knee to Caesar rather than the Son of God. Going for brownie points here, Dallas Willard says, yes, the human problem is to find in knowledge a solid basis for action. Knowledge, or presumed knowledge, routinely leads to arrogance. What it involves is so important that people cannot, without grace and intentionality, divorce their ego from it. And this is where we find the chief priests and elders, Judas, Pilate, and the crowd, coming later to a sermon near you. What you know and what you think you know are not necessarily the same thing. Each one thought that they knew what was best for them. And each time it was that they should look after their own interests. But let's be straight here. Jesus was not sent to die by Pilate, by Judas, by Caiaphas, or any of the bellowing crowd calling for the release of a murderer and all-round bad guy. And he certainly wasn't sent to death by Satan, God's enemy. He was compelled to die in this way, in order that those he would come to judge could be forgiven, just as he had asked his father to forgive while he was hanging on a cross. He judged us all as worth rescuing, and he walked freely to the cross. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to you. You know how we are tempted. You know our weaknesses. And yet your judgment of us is that we are worth saving. Thank you for your willingness to be executed by those you came to save. Without you, we could not face Judgment Day. Yet through you, we come before your seat of judgment with confidence, knowing that we are loved, forgiven, and welcomed. Amen.